So, Savoy, this is a book about love. I'd love to know what you think about love, because my hunch is you're going to think it's a, a ridiculous bourgeois concept and we can get beyond erotic love. That's just something that, it, that Hollywood sells us. Uh, no, first... Uh, OK, you will stop me if I speak for too long. First, let me just start it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Easy to start with me, difficult to end. First, uh, I don't think even Hollywood is still doing that. I always use this example, <coughs> two examples. James Bond and the greatest classic of today, Dan Brown. Did you notice something in James Bond films with Quantum of Solace? It's politically very progressive film. In it, basically, James Bond saves Morales' regime in Bolivia against some uh, capitalist uh, corporation takeover. But what, did you notice that this is the first James Bond, James Bond movie where, at the end, the love is not consummated? They're just desperate, uh, Daniel Craig and Olga Kurilenko, to name them. They, they just split apart. Next thing, uh, Dan Brown, I'm... I mean, I think books should be burned. I think Goebbels, <laughs> Goebbels had a nice, pre good principle. In Germany in '33, he just didn't burn the, the right, right books. books. <laughs> the right books. Like Dan Brown should be burned. But did you notice how already in the novels, for example, uh, how is that one called? Uh, 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 the, yes, the biggest hit, Da Vinci Code. No sex. I mean, how can you screw uh, uh, the grand-grand-granddaughter of Jesus Christ? No? And it's this kind of perverted transmission. The plot of the story is, of course, the vulgar old crazy conspiracy theory that uh, Jesus Christ really was married. But it's as if, you know, psychoanalysis teaches us this. When you have a great myth out there, Forget about what is out there. Look at what happens here in front of our eyes. Poor Jesus Christ has to make love, has to F, to cover up the fact that there is no sex here <laughs> between uh, Langdon and, and so on. Okay, Next, so you've avoided no, no, the sorry, question. <laughs> sorry, yeah, yeah. No, no. Let's go on then. An even stranger thing. Uh, the second, earlier novel, but uh, the second Dan Brown movie, uh, Angels and Demons. Very strange thing happens. In the novel, there is sex at the end. Between uh, the, the Langdon and that Vittoria Vetra, whatever, an Italian scientist lady. In the movie, they have thrown out sex. Where are the old days where we were saying Hollywood adds sex to make it more commercial? Now Hollywood is throwing it out. And I think this is a very sad tendency. It's in our new type of hedonism. Even if we do real sex. We more and more do it in a masturbatory way. There is a wonderful scene in, did you see for me, absolutely one of the candidates for the greatest British movie of all times, Terry Gillian's Brazil. Remember that wonderful scene in a restaurant where you order a meal and then you get literally, in Lacanian sense, a kind of a divided meal. What you physically get is a kind of a piece of dog shit, just anonymous, like some kind of porridge stuff. And then you get above it a beautiful photo 
of what this really is. <laughs> That's our sex more, more. You just need woman or the body as that piece of feet so that you can fantasize about the image. So okay, back so to what I'm saying, I don't think that today's ideology, I don't mean yeah. official ideology, but simply how we perceive ourselves, our desires, how society suggests us to do it, is still passionate sexual love. It's something much closer to deconstructionist Judith Butler theory. Don't get overtly attached, uh, experiment with yourself, reconstruct yourself, discover new freedoms, and so on. So I think we live in very sad times, and then I will stop just to tell you the last proof. I spoke with some American friends who are practicing psychoanalysts which I will never be. Why? Because as an analyst, you have calmly to listen to another person. Can you imagine me doing that? But okay. Uh, and they told me that half a century ago, if a man, married man or woman, was jumping around from one woman to another, this was considered something pathological. You know, clinical feature, oh, we have to analyze it. What is this guy trying to avoid escaping from? Today, it's the opposite. If you jump around, it's normal. If you are faithful to your partner, oh, pathology, fixation, and so on. <laughs> I really think that that's for me the problem with standard critique of patriarchy and so on. That's no longer the ruling ideology. The ruling so ideology about love, and you told talk to me about sex, which is interesting. I mean, they're connected. Um, okay. No, 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 no. Okay, I will answer you to you that love one. Well. Love, I'm very metaphysical here. Sex without love is masturbatory. Even if it's really another person, you really use the other as plastic dildo or whatever, as a physical prop just to get enjoyment. The only way to reach out to the other beyond your fantasy is love. And I'm quite metaphysical here, but not in Plato's uh, well, sense. Yes, I think that, first, I agree with, I think it was Neil Gaiman, I quote it in my violence book, who wrote a wonderful passage on it's difficult to imagine anything more brutal, violent that passionate, than passionate love. Look, let's say you are a modern deconstructionist Judith Butler person. You reconstruct yourself, you run around, you have one night stands, drinks, then you fall in love. It's a catastrophe. All your <laughs> daily love is thrown off the rails. You're obsessed by it. That's why love is something that doesn't fit our, uni our universe. And that's why I, sorry for this stupidity, love love. I think love is precisely, and that's why Christianity has such a problem with carnal love, not because it's the opposite, because it's its greatest competitor. Our, if by metaphysics we mean this, we are in our daily life, uh, just uh, ordinary concerns, and then some higher cause obsesses us, our ordinary life is ruined. Love is this. Love is the basic metaphysical experience. Second thing, and with this I will finish. Love is always contingent. Love is the beautiful example of contingency turned around into necessity. What is love? You walk on the street, sorry for the stupid example, you sleep on a banana, a lady who is totally by chance there, helps you to stand up and you discover this is the love of your life. And automatically you restructure all your past life as if I was alive just to arrive at this moment, you know. Okay, so Yella, um, 
you brutally deprived me of my work. I didn't help him get up after no, he slept on the bus. Last time I interviewed you, you called me your super ego. I wonder what you're going to call me this time. But, um, um, yeah, no, the, um, within the novel, do you think that Matt fits that example that Slavoj had there of, of, of using women in a kind of masturbatory way, that in a sense they become objects to fulfil his desires? Or is there something else going on? Because it's a succession of women that he doesn't stay with for long. He doesn't really seem that into seducing them. He sort of almost does it as a tick. Is he a Don Juan figure? Is he, what, what is he doing? I there? think that he begins as a Don Juan who doesn't really believe in true love anymore. Uh, but gradually he's, he changes, he develops a little bit. And at the end... Um, I think he becomes a believer of a true love. So he starts as a very desperate person, uh, just trying to find his way in life with women, and then um, gradually he becomes um, more inclined to love. Because it seems to me that in the negging that I talked about, you know, when he's, when he's flirting through um, insulting the women, he's got more respect for them in a sense, because he's being honest with them, um, than he is when he's in the bedroom because he's, you know, he's, he's using them at that point. Before, a, there's a, a mutual um, game going on where there's a, there's a to and fro and they come back at him sometimes and sometimes they overreact, sometimes they can stand up to him. But in the bedroom, he seems to be using them physically purely to satisfy his lust. Yes, but... Uh, there's no, no glimmer of love. No, no. At least at the beginning, there's no yeah. glimmer of love. But it's, it's true that uh, there's a lot of failure even in the bedroom, uh, in a sense that he does not succeed in his endeavors. No, no, so that's the theme of variations. It's not like one seduction after another, 100% success rate. But he does have a high hit rate, um, <laughs> for sure. Um, I just wanted to add that... Um, I chose this structure because comedy thrives on, um, on failures. And it was funny to me that, you know, ev every, other wo every, woman, every other woman is a total failure for Matthias and that he needs to uh, go through all these women and these failures in order to, as Beckett would say, fail better with his love at the end. So it's a romantic story. A very short remark, yeah. very important. I can confirm this in my relationship with her, how love works in a strange way. When I was seducing her, I went into all this bullshit, you know. It's not just physical love, something deeper, blah, blah. And basically, I'm sorry to tell you this, she told me, listen, do you know that sometimes I don't want all that deeper crap. I just want to be fully objectified and used and so on. <laughs> and this is part of true love. Whenever your lover is telling you, you know, it's not just physical love, it's much more... Your bells should ring, run away as fast as you can. So did you use the Trump method? Sorry? Did you use the Trump method? No, did, no, no. Did no, you no. use the Trump method? This is, I mean, it's, it's quite a brutal um, confession in a sense. Did you go okay. the Trump Trump method? is a great democratic politician, our only hope and so on. <laughs> Wait a minute, I'm not kidding. Remember what Trump did. Are you aware? I'm not kidding. He single-handedly destroyed practically the Republican Party. It's falling apart. Not too bad an achievement. <laughs> so, but seriously, about, uh, about... No, you know what's the problem? And there is another topic we debated with you. Uh, <clears throat> you know why Trump is 
really vulgar, not so much as when he is vulgar with this touching, but he is the most tragically vulgar precisely when he doesn't want to weep but does it in a wrong way. For example, once I was shocked, at some French conference he celebrated Melania. Melania, she's Slovene, you know, oh. <laughs> we Slovenes will in a week maybe occupy the White House and so on. But okay, <laughs> to celebrate her gentleness, refinement, I'm afraid to use that word, I will use a, a, a more subtle, refined word. He said, you know, in all my years with her, I haven't heard her, not even once, uh, flatulence emitting that sound, you know. But, okay, maybe we sometimes do this. That what is truly vulgar for me is even to mention this in public, you know. Like, you know, the true vulgarity is not so much to do things, but it's to publicly mention things you don't talk about. Like, he did the same with Hillary. You remember, Hillary disappeared in the middle of some debate for a minute, and Trump said, obviously, she had to run to the restroom, toilet, and Trump said, oh, can you imagine, where did she go, disgusting. No, we all do this, it's not disgusting, just don't talk about it. <laughs> disgusting is to say this publicly. So, in spite of all my political admiration for Trump, no, he is not like me, he is not my friend. So, I, I was interested... I was interested um, that you described your relationship, the early stages of it, as you seducing Yella, um, which is the model in, in the book, actually. You know, it, it seems yeah, to be. But I'm it doesn't here seem to be very reciprocal. This is not but, how it functions. Yeah. I'm here a total pessimist. We men think this, but from the beginning we are invisibly manipulated. We don't know <laughs> even how. Like, I think women talk with each other, they decide which woman will get whom, and it's all... We are dead before even we know. Well, it's interesting, in the, in, in the novel, the character who's strongest, it seems to me, is the one who becomes the most attractive, the one who is capable of withholding, of playing hard to get, of actually choosing the moment and, and the, the limits of what she's prepared to do. She's the one who actually becomes the one who can really compel... Matt's attention. But he is uh, a feminine fantasy. I will tell you something, it will not embarrass you. It was widely assumed that the model for Matthias is a Slovene very good photographer and he was Jela's previous boyfriend. I can tell you we are now friends that he is a very nice guy, not like that. It was Yela's dream that he should have been such more brutal and so on. Well, I told you so. The silent type from the 50s, like yeah. Humphrey Bogart sort of person. Or is this the, to avoid libel? Sorry? You're not just avoiding libel. Um, so that's interesting. That, so the, the photography thing, so there was a, an autobiographical element. Yes, the there are, but I think that... The, tr the truth of fiction is that it is a creation of a new world. Even if you pick some things from reality, the way you mold the story is actually uh, a totally un a new life. And I really molded all the characters and really wanted to, to push through this line of thought, you know. And maybe uh, I was thinking when you were talking about Plato and um, the two halves uh, looking for mm. each other, I think that comedy is not very platonistic in that sense. I think that the standpoint of comedy is that, uh, that no half is ever going to fit another half. So that 
there is a certain impossibility to love. But although there, the love is impossible, you can make it work. So I think that's the miracle that comedy um, provides. Well, I thought, I thought your novel was more existential in the sense that there are no givens. There's no romantic model that you have to follow. There's a sense in which you create a model through your choices and you choose in the light of the things that happen to you, not in, in the light of any kind of given um, framework within, within, within which love has to function. So that there's a kind of self-discovery. It's like a building's romance. There's a sense in which the character discovers things through his interaction. But his... Um, actually, in the symposium, the... The Socratic position is very different from Aristophanes' position, which is that you learn from your love, and it was homoerotic love, that the, you know, the, the, the man falls in love with a beautiful young man, Socrates falls in love with a beautiful young man. Love isn't just about infatuation with that one individual, because if you love a beautiful person, you love them because they're beautiful, you start admiring beauty in other people, you admire the abstract concept of beauty, and gradually you move up what's called Diotima's ladder, this ladder up to the point where you're focusing on the ideal form of things, not on the actual individual, which is almost the opposite of what we think of as love, which is love is about the individual. You're then focus on the idea of beauty or of love or perfection. So that, so that for Plato, um, the whole process is, is one of getting away from reality. Whereas in the novel, there's a sort of sense in which Matt's development is towards being aware of what's around him and getting away from being in the grip of a particularly pernicious platonic view about what, his, what, what love should be. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, yes. Can I add something? Then you can stop me. But I agree with you, but in this sense, I think... The big opposition, and Kierkegaard himself knew it very well in his philosophical fragments, or how it's usually translated, wonderful. it's precisely Socrates versus Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian here, although an atheist. I think that precisely, as he said, uh, the Christian view is that, okay, you go up, up to all these ideas, but then you have to fall down radically to a single individual. That's the paradox of Christianity. God, universal, and so on, but at the end, you are back, we are back to one person, a stupid, ordinary guy in Palestine, and so on. That's the first thing. The second thing, things get here complicated in love precisely in the same way as in theology. Look, if I say to some person, I love you because you have beautiful hair, legs, even brain, uh, it's not true love. True love goes the other way around. I discover how beautiful you are because I love you. Love is not objective. If love were to be objective, it's a matter of mental accountancy. You have, I have you and her. I put a list. You have nice whatever, hair, legs. The other lady has eyes and I put, oh wait, you are two points higher, it's you. Higher, it's you. That's not love. Love is precisely like intelligent theologists say. How uh, it's obscene to say, I become a Christian because I found the arguments of Jesus Christ quite convincing. No, if you were in medieval times, you should be burned for saying that. It's the opposite. True Christian attitude is because you believe you can understand Christianity. And that's the structure of love. So I am here in this sense, again, Christian. Love is contingent also in this radical sense that you are in love for reasons. But these reasons are 
appear to you as such only once you already are in love. Second point, which is important for me, made very nicely by Lacan. Love is sublimation, not idealization. This means in true love, you don't idealize your partner. That's the miracle of love. You noticed all the dirty details, whatever, imperfections, but they make you love the beloved even more. That's the miracle of love, how you have here an imperfect human being, here, not me, (laughs) but you know, in all this imperfection, she is the absolute, or he, or whatever, now in this transgender anti-species time, or eat, or a dog, or whatever, whomever you love. Well, in a way, the the, the women that, most of the women that Matt meets are interchangeable. They are interchangeable, so they fail as lovers truly lovers in that sense, because they are just simply a means to an end for him. They, he's yeah. not interested in them as individuals. But uh, do we betray too much? You, censor, you warned me in advance, I shouldn't say too much, that yeah. the big surprise is who becomes... The one. Yeah, the, well, one. the one. I will not tell you. a big surprise. Let's leave it as a surprise. For I will, yeah. no, no, I will just not yeah. polemicize with you. You know, we started before in the back room, the <laughs> green room, how is it called? Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, all those red green rooms in uh, Twin Peaks. You know? yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, about, I don't think that it really spoils the game if you... We say too much if you know the ending. And uh, even in detective novels, I will give you a perfect proof. They are no longer watchable today, but years ago I liked them. Colombo. What was the revolution of Colombo? The crime is perfectly shown at the beginning. You know everything. So what we are waiting for is not to discover what really happened, but how Colombo will establish the link between what really happened and ordinary reality. How will he establish a link? And another thing why Colombo was very intelligent. I mean, as a series, is, did you notice something very mysterious which brings us back to the structure of love? The mystery of Colombo is this one. A murder or whatever happens, Colombo arrives at the crime scene and immediately he knows who is the culprit. Mm. And then it's just slowly how he will prove it. Now, this is interesting because that's also following the model of how you describe love, that you fall in love with somebody, then you discover the reasons. It's also the model that Nietzsche has for philosophy that philosophers express a conclusion which is miraculously consistent with their deepest heartfelt beliefs. Mm -hmm. And then they they tell you it's actually the product of rational, logical processes. So Kant happens to end up in his moral philosophy with a kind of Protestant um, Christian position about how you should be honest and and not tell lies and so on. And he makes out that it's just because he reason from ordinary experience to, okay, yeah, to this yeah, position, why, but actually, yeah. as Nietzsche points out, it's just no, the, That's the, why, let's forget about all this bullshit philosophical reasoning. I think the best definition of philosophy was provided by ancient Greeks apropos Socrates. The duty of a philosopher is to corrupt the youth. <laughs> no, I don't mean it in an immoral sense, but like to, to so, tear so, them so, out, to destabilize them, to make them doubt the ruling ideology, just whatever. Just for those people who don't know, that was one of the charges that led to Socrates' execution. That's what I meant, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in a way, from the standpoint of existing power, 
The Athenian court, democratic court, don't forget this, was totally right. They were just. See, I would, I would say you're just, that's another example of what I was talking about with Nietzsche. That's what you like doing. And then, uh, then you give reasons about why that should be the whole of philosophy. But he wasn't doing it enough because, you know, you corrupt the youth and then you end up appropriated by Hitler, you know. <laughs> Although Nietzsche was a much nicer person. For example, he was always proud about his Polish ancestry. Not exactly a Nazi feature. Another thing, in a wonderful part, I think you may correct me if I'm wrong, in genealogy of morals, mm. he is so beautiful, such a beautiful idea. He provides the ultimate anti-anti-Semitic grim. He says, we Germans are aggressive, warlike, Jews are merchants. And if we bring Germans and Jews together, we would be absolutely unbeatable. No, that's his dream. Ah, that's the Nietzsche that I like. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you are famous for saying that um, Gandhi was more violent than Hitler, aren't you? But I meant it in a positive sense. <laughs> no, no, sorry. For me, what I mean there by violence is, of course, not physical violence, but how much did you really change reality? And I was just making, in a provocative way, I admit it, the old Marxist point that, again, to use Nietzsche's terms, Hitler's violence was deeply reactive. He was ready to kill millions, so just that ultimately the existing economic order remains the same. He was active not to change things. And this is a wonderful example from everyday obsessional neurosis. Believe me, I can bear witness to it because I am one <laughs> obsessional neurotic. You know, people ask you me why <laughs> am I so hyperactive. Not to change things, but so that to make it sure that nothing will change. Like, you can imagine how my own psychoanalysis looked. I talked all the time. Why? Because I was afraid that if I stop talking for a second, the analyst may ask me some truly embarrassing question. <laughs> so I was active all the time to make it sure that nothing changes. And there was something of this, something of this in Hitler. It was, while Gandhi, whatever you say, and I'm very critical of Gandhi, with all his non-violence and so on and so on, sorry, he did change things, India become independent and so on and so on. Only in this sense, I mean it. Okay, I think this would be a good time to open up for questions, actually. If we've, we've got a roving mic somewhere, I believe. Um, is that true? There was advertised a roving mic. At the back, so I can barely see because I'm blinded by lights here. Did you There's do your Stalinist duty? Did you oh, organise oh, the debate? Did you distribute questions? Yeah, I've distributed questions, so you should get some tough questions now. Um, there's one over here I can see. Maybe if you can... Is there just one mic? Yeah, so wait for the mic. Please do wait for the mic. Can you wave if you've got another question? Anybody? I can't really see. Yep, I've got one at the back there right next. Yeah, hi. Uh, I just wanted to know if, because, because for what I hear, I haven't read the novel, and it sounds like there, there is associated with very classical stereotypical roles, like the male, the female, the seduction idea we have. And is there any place for, or you have thought about, uh, non-binary relationships, or is there any thought about that in this novel, or maybe some influence or anything about that? Sorry, I didn't hear the question completely there. I understood um, it, that it's only male, female, and so on. Is there a place, please, lady, correct me if I'm wrong, for other not standard roles, like not just heterosexual, male, oh, female, yeah. for other... Yeah, good yeah that, that's exactly correct? what I mean, yeah. yeah sorry, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I mean... 
one of my uh, aims in the novel was to provide um, very different characters, very different female characters. And as Nigel said, uh, the main character uh, winds up with a transvestite one night and there is a lesbian figure. So I tried to include different positions. Um, in <laughs> and I will do <laughs> no, that's now. That's true. <laughs> and I will yeah. do now something for which, but I believe in Colombo model, for which you both will lynch me. Don't and do it. You know, feminist. Don't do it, don't do it. Why um, are you rejoining women? Where is male bonding, my God? <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, because, okay, I'll put it in this way, very abstractly. No, no, that's precisely what you worried about, non-conventional, plays a major positive role at the end. That's all yeah, that I absolutely. will say. Yes. And, but the incident of the transvestite <laughs> is very interesting because there's a lack of awareness on Matt's part about how intimate he is. There's, it's shown rather than said, but there's a kind of intimacy that only genitals prevent going further. I mean, because, because in a sense that relationship could very well be a fundamental one for him because, of, because he's so much in tune with that individual and so attracted to that individual. And there's a kind of criticism built into the description, I felt. Um, there's a kind of sense in which he doesn't realise what he's doing as he's doing it and the degree to which he could easily have formed a relationship with that person, but convention in, and his prejudices didn't, didn't lead him down that route. Yeah, that... That's true, that's a correct description. Uh, but I wanted to stress out that to me it was important to show the, that impossibility which I was talking about. And I used these different characters to, to have this input of impossibil different impossibilities or different challenges that one, uh, one has when trying to, to find true love. So um, it was a conceptual... It was... Um, how do you say, uh, it was a deliberate decision to, to go, uh, to have all these differences and so on. Um. That's what I meant in a sense, there's a theme of variations, it's very musical, with a kind of resolution, but it's a kind of false cadence, and then there's a different resolution, there's, it's really interesting the way it ends, but there's a question, have you got the microphone there? Yeah. Can we pass the microphone down to a question at the back? Oh gosh, there are people in the upper tier as well, is anybody... I don't know how we can get a microphone up there if you've got a question up there. But... Thank you. Um, early you spoke about how early you spoke about psychoanalysis, and I was interested to know whether you think psychoanalysis can be scientific or not. Can be. Can psychoanalysis be scientific or not? Do you think psychoanalysis is scientific? Well, uh, as Lacan answered this question. And I don't want, please, to... I feel bad for talking too much, so I will try to be short. You know, the question... Lacan, Lacan changed this question into a question, how radically do we have to change the notion of science so that psychoanalysis fits into it? Because obviously, at a certain direct level, if we take as a model, as a paradigm, what today counts as serious science and so on, Obviously, psychoanalysis is not a science. Why? Because science, the subject of science, by definition, as Lacan puts it, forecloses or rather excludes subjectivity. The whole point of psycho, sorry, of science is that the one who speaks as a scientist should be 
it doesn't matter who it is, empty, anonymous, and so on. And uh, for Lacan, precisely in psychoanalysis, the whole point is that it matters who speaks. And not only this, but even, uh, uh, how should I put it, uh, when you say something, this is the biggest epistemological break, in psychoanalysis, when you say something which is obviously wrong in the objective sense, uh, when you make a mistake, slip of tongue, whatever, that's where truth explodes. Like, you make a slip of tongue, a mistake, it's a lie. But a lie can tell more about you than the truth. Which is why in analysis I was in, I know it. I tried to lie all the time. I invented dreams and so on, and my analyst just laughed at me and told me that not only was it obvious that I'm lying, but in my, through my lies I betrayed myself much more than I would have by telling the truth. So I'm just saying that I still think psychoanalysis is something extremely serious today, more actual than ever, because Freud's problem was never this Viennese uh, Victorian oppression. Freud's problem is not you are impotent because you have a severe father who terrorizes you. No. Freud's fundamental problem is if you have a tolerant father who tells you, ah, did you, did you do it with any girls and so on and so on, it's an even better way to make you if you are a boy impotent and so on. So, I think that that's why psychoanalysis is actual more than ever today in our permissive times. I stop. Okay. Um, the question down here, I don't know if you can see. Yeah, I wanted to ask both of you a question about marriage. And you also, I think you mentioned that um, the book ends in marriage, right? So, um, or, well, well, there is a marriage, not to, we but not the hero's marriage. Okay. Well, well anyway. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, I go. Lying, of course. We will be I, I, st a, I will still read it. Anyway. Lot, so. uh, um, no, the, que the question is because many people today dismiss marriage as like, um, well, it's just a piece of paper, we can live together without getting married. Do you think there is a role for marriage nowadays which goes beyond the merely, let's say, bureaucratic reasons? Maybe Yana could answer this one. Yeah. Yes, uh, I have a great answer, but it's, it's not mine, actually. It's from Mladen Dolar's, uh, Slavoj's from, friend. From Mladen Dolar. You probably know him as a philosopher. Anyhow, uh, Mladen Dolar said that uh, the function of marriage is that it sort of liberates you from the constant tension of uh, proving your love to the loved ones. So you get married in order to relax in a relationship. Um, so I, I like that answer. But Slavoj is more fundamental uh, here, right? For marriage, yes. No, this theory of marriage is what I call the Tibetan praying meal or wheel, you know. Know what Tibetans do. It's a little bit racist dream, I don't know what to do. But the idea is you put a prayer, write it on a piece of paper, you put it into a wheel, you turn it around and then you can think about sex, whatever you want, but objectively you are praying, you know. <laughs> so it's, and even in Hegel, you found implicitly a wonderful theory of marriage, which is, you are passionately in love with a girl or man, whatever. You cannot get a calm moment for it, what to do, nervous. Marry him or her. 
Soon you will get overused to it, you will grow indifferent. If you want to kill the excess of love, you get married. But I don't quite buy this. I think that precisely today, when marriage less and less plays the role, this economic role of uh, breeding children, whatever, uh, transferring property, that marriage is more actual. For me, marriage is a kind of a symbolic act of telling publicly society, Fuck off. I have someone for whom I care more. You are out. It's a wonderful public declaration of indifference. It's interesting. Uh, John Stuart Mill wrote very passionately about, about marriage's companionship, uh, as friendship, and sort of the sense in which it doesn't have to be at a high passionate level to be something that's... Yeah, but it doesn't hurt to have a little bit of passion. Well, sure. But it may be... I mean, this is... I mentioned Jonathan Haidt, um, the happiness hypothesis. He he talks a lot about this. It's very interesting. Psychologically, Mm -hmm. you can't hope for that passion to be at a high level throughout a long relationship. It's It's not plausible. And this is part of the the modern version of the platonic myth that you find your other half and the passion will be intense for 50 years. And it just won't. It's going to grow into something else, the entwinement of life. But, sorry, the last time I speak. But I hope you agree with me. But for me, the true test of a relationship, okay, it's nice, those passionate nights, blah, blah, blah. But as my good friend, Alain Badiou, the French guy developed, the other side of love is to expand it into everyday life, to establish all these small rituals, how you structure your life. You know, it's not just passionate nights. It's, my God, daily life. Who cooks breakfast? How do you go here, there? And this is sometimes, I'm not exaggerating, not as important as sex, but quite a beautiful part, maybe the most beautiful part of a relationship. This patient, I would call it in a Christian way, the work of love. Patiently structuring your daily life as a couple, as the two, sharing the same space. And if I may add something, I, I think the trick is how, do, again, how the, the little tortures of life, I don't know, you are tired or overworked or whatever, how you get through them as a couple, but in a sense that uh, this love is comical, that actually the uh, impossibilities, impasses become a motor of, um, I don't know, wittiness and uh, humor and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, that w- what I believe in, that's what I believe in. In a comical love, I would call it. Better than tragic love. Absolutely. Tragic love is overrated. Another question, uh, second row, there. Yes, thank you. Um, I haven't read the book yet, and it sounds very uh, interesting and relatable and important on a lot of sort of broad levels. I'm wondering about the kind of specific context in which it takes place, and do you think there's anything kind of Slovene about the novel, and if so, what would that mean, or what does that look like? Well, thank you for that question. Um, I think the, the answer is uh, twofold. Uh, on one sense, the book was definitely inspired by Hollywood classic um, comedies, by, even by British TV sitcoms, uh, so in short, by the best pieces of comedy we have. Uh, but on the other uh, on, on the other hand, the book is very integrated into Ljubljana, the capital of Slovenia, and uh, the characters are breathing uh, that air, and you can sort of feel the structure of this city. 
But I think that um, actually Ljubljana is a very average European city, so uh, it's not as exotic as one might expect. But I think that where the book succeeds, I'm sorry, I will tell you, my friend, although I have political suspicions about him, but he's really a nice guy, Hanif Kureishi, uh, he provided the best answer to this dilemma. Once he told me I'm writing a new novel, and I couldn't restrain for me the definition of a friend is someone who you can insult to the end in all ways, and he accepts <laughs> it. So I said, oh, he said, it will be totally different book from the others. And I told him, oh, but nonetheless, you know, like in all your books, the hero will have a Pakistani diplomat father who is a failed writer and so on. Like, how, no? And he gave me a perfect answer. He said, but... Don't we all have fathers who are Pakistani diplomats who are fake writers? You know, like the true art elevates a particular situation, very specific, into something absolutely universal that you can relate to. And that's the wager of the book. We cannot say if it will work or not. But the hope is that this shitty, I despise her company, this uh, Ljubljana cafeteria where people meet that it will find this universal echo, but we cannot decide it in advance. Just before this other question, did you comment on the book as it was being written? At the end, yeah. And was it changed as a result? Not yes, a lot. He, he, I made some... He, uh, yeah, he made some great insights. Slavo is very... Um, he has great imagination and feeling for characters, so... Really? Yeah. I wouldn't... <laughs> I don't like to be seen like that. I like to, be, to see myself as a brutal guy who is friendly towards everyone. But you know, this, you British are the best in it. This fake friendliness. Very polite, but keep at a distance. Um, you, you, can I just say... Can I just say reason for divorce, what you, you say now. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Hi, thank you very much for your talk. So, I haven't read the book. But I was wondering, we are discussing a lot about love, love affairs, but the title of the book is The Comedy of Life. So what is the relation? No, the title no. is None Like Her. Uh, the, well, the, the title of the event is The Comedy of Life. Oh, okay. The title so, of the book well, is None Like well, Her. Well, the, the title of the event is The Comedy of Life. So why, yeah. why have you chosen this title for the event if we are discussing about love? So what is the relation between love and life? Love and? Comedy. Comedy, yeah. Oh, you. Love and life more than oh, comedy, because yeah, you yeah. have already discussed Comedy of life. Oh, that's interesting. Why is it the comedy of life, not the comedy of love? Well, I, I think because this event was not scripted beforehand, so the conversation just went as it went, and we ended up in the But why the is the title the comedy of life? Well, ask the organizers, that's all no, I can right. say. I, I don't think... No, no, I'm not protesting it, but can I make, again, the last time, a short remark, very short. You know, when you say comedy, just be very precise. Comedy, for me, does not mean, ooh, ooh, it's easy stuff, we love. Can I draw your attention to two, three interesting details? Did you notice how all the best movies on Holocaust are comedies? Not because it's not serious. But because when things are really horrifying, there is something false to present them as tragic. Because, you know, in a tragedy, you still have the tragic hero's dignity. And life in Holocaust, in Auschwitz or in Gulag was 
you were so broken down that you were beyond, uh, beyond the tragic dignity. That's why if you read the ultimate book, uh, 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 Primo Levi, if this is a man, mm. it's full of genuinely comical details. So things are much more, just be careful, ambiguous here. Comedy is light, but comedy can also be something you can, the only way to cope with the situation which is so horrible that it's beyond tragedy. If you permit me, I'm sorry. But that's not, that's not the, the book isn't about the tragedy or, or the, the comedy in that terrible sense, is it? The comedy of life, or do you say a certain kind yeah, of but there is silent is, despair beneath no, it. That's what think I think. The, the conclusion that is isn't it that most of the heroes are in a silent, refined way, not in this, uh, uh, I want to kill myself, but in a subtle way, I claim. I don't they know don't seem unhappy, do they? Sorry? The characters aren't unhappy for the most part. They may be trapped in a world... I would say despair, even. Maybe it's too strong a word. But there I is would... a bit of despair. And there's yeah. progress as well. So it's not like nothing happens and, and everything stays in a terrible situation. There is progress. Mm. And relationships... What, what strikes me is um, Matt is a very cynical outsider figure, but he's got very strong friendships, reliable friendships. Mm. Apart from the, the, the way that he's trying to seduce, he has, throughout the book several characters who are strong friends with him. He has his own gang, yeah. So it's not, it's not a, it's, it doesn't seem to be pessimistic about human relationships to me. It means, to me, it seems actually quite optimistic in the sense this guy can lose his lover, can find lots of sex, can actually find different sorts of relationships and friendships that work for him. So I didn't find that... Yeah, but maybe I misread it, but I think these friends are not friends who really understand him, but maybe... Because he doesn't get insulted? No, it's or? more like, how should I put it, they are friends who can be helpful precisely by way that they superficially misread him. Friends can also do this when you are in truly desperate situation. The last thing you want is somebody who would really understand you. You need... And he, you know, like he is like this guy Alexander, or who? Yeah, but he is a true friend. I mean, that's a real friendship. We will in the evening alone. We will. <laughs> so it's a, it's a I will give you a chance to correct your errors. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I wanted to say just uh, to to add uh, something to what mm. you were saying about uh, horrible horrible traumas of society and comedy. It's very interesting that the best movies on the Second World War were comedies. Uh, the Great Dictator and um, To Be or Not To Be from Ernst Lubitsch. Uh, and they are great movies and they really tackle the, the theme in the right way, I think. It's not pathetic, it's not um, desperate. Yeah. Uh, I, it's interesting that uh, comedy can address such uh, terrible times in the best way, I'm sure. So does that mean that you are pessimistic about, about relationships, then? If you, are you agreeing with Slavoj's account of the despair of these characters? I think that um, finding true love is probably the biggest trauma of average in individual. So um, that's why I think comedy is great with love, because love is so troublesome and having a relationship is very hard and so on. I mean, Sartre famously said that human relationships collapse into either sadism or masochism, that you either assert yourself so much that the other person 
becomes an object to you, or you become an object to them. That didn't seem to be the way you were heading. No, no. No, and I, I don't want to sound despair. I just think that structurally, you know, life is a very complex thing, and it, sometimes it's very hard. And um, Well, that's why I started with the, the Plato, the idea of perfection. Well, let's right. get rid of that. You have imperfection, but you can still celebrate imperfection without exactly. cancelling despair. But may I add something? Wouldn't you agree that Sartre, although I have otherwise great respect for him, blah, blah, is simply wrong here. I don't think that sadism means objectifying your victim. Lacan's thesis, beautiful one, is that it's on the contrary, not objectifying, but look, the point of a sadist is not just to, to, to torture the victim, but to torture the victim in such a way, publicly disclosing him, her, that the victim is aware of the shamefulness and utterly ashamed and so on and so on. Sadism is not objectifying. If there is an object in sadist relationship, it's the torturer himself. That's why I think, for example, Stalinism was sadist or perverse. Not because they were doing also, because they were doing those horrible things, but because the strict definition of a Stalinist communist is pure instrument of historical necessity. I know better, sorry if you are my victim, I know better than you people what you want, and on this behalf, even if it's against your will, I can torture you or whatever and so on and so on. Things are much more complex in psychoanalysis, you know. Things about uh, masochism, sadism and so on and so on. Well, Sartre might have been psychologically naive there, but I think his point was about objectification. Not, he chose the word sadism presumably to be dramatic. I don't think it was sadism in that mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, but don't I don't you think, think that when somebody is objectified... It works only because he or she remains a subject and finds this extremely humiliating and so on and so on. You want to humiliate the other by treating him her as an object. Precisely, you can only humiliate a, a subject, not an object. Well, let's face it, if he did mean that, it still didn't make it a particularly attractive situation. <laughs> um, any more questions? Okay. Yes, there's one at the front row um, and then one at the back, in the back row after that. Uh, this, is for, this is for both of you. What do you think is the role of money in love? And is this approached in the book? <laughs> no. The role of money? Okay, there is no money in the book. <laughs> they, buy, they buy quite a few drinks, I have to say. Yeah, but that's all they buy. I mean, no property buying. But uh, otherwise, uh, I, I don't think I have a stance on love and money. Slavoj, I'm counting on you. <laughs> Not about love and money, but about uh, sex and money. I always had a deep respect. I saw some documentaries on prostitutes who claimed... Okay, I'm against prostitution, I mean, but generally. But some of them said, I want simple sex and I'm terribly afraid of all that emotional burden and so on and so on. And if money is involved, there is something so liberating in it, you know, like you, then, you get the pure rough stuff without all the emotional luggage and so on and so on. And why am I mentioning this? Because it's exactly for the same reason that in psychoanalysis, 
There has to be money. You pay the analyst. As Lacan and Freud put it very nicely, without money, the analyst would become too involved into the pathological circle and so on. Money means I'm doing it for money, keep me out. <laughs> the end. So it's like marriage. Well, I wouldn't go. No, no, no. With marriage, <laughs> sorry, don't be mad. I have another theory. Marriage is much worse than prostitution because in prostitution, when you need sex, you pay for it. In marriage, you have to pay for it to be with the wife. But then if you don't make love to keep the wife satisfied, you again have to give her money so that she doesn't annoy you. I mean, marriage is fair yeah, so from this. That's a very um, sexist view of marriage, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, we talk here like communists openly. No. No, no, no. <laughs> like to switch completely subject. Uh, you said, Yela, that you are grateful to Olivia for the translation. Could you explain a bit how the process went and if there are any particular challenges? Well, let me just say that I find it a miracle that a person who is totally English uh, found interest in a minority language such as Slovene. And it's even a greater miracle that she find, found my book interesting and that she really... Uh, I mean, struggled with it, did the hard work, and I think she, she did really a great job. Uh, how the process went, um, it's probably a question for Olivia herself. Uh, let me just say that we did some um, communicating. When she um, had some troubles or didn't understand certain words, she would email me and I would give my suggestions. But um, in general, it was, um, it was all her. I mean, she, she didn't give me a lot of work with the English translation. So again, uh, thank you for this question because I cannot stress out enough how happy I am that Olivia exists. And, it <laughs> and, it, and, and I want to add something. You will be mad at me, but I read the novel in the manuscript and when you showed me some pages of translation, I think I even told you this. I said, my God, but this is better than <laughs> the <laughs> original, you know. It's a little bit like you, Olivia, you are, uh, how is it called the big translator, Norman Kemp Smith of, yeah, or Kant, counts, yeah. of Kant, and everybody knows that linguistically. The English translation is better than the original. Because Kant is a confused writer, he has this one page, one sentence with all that. And Norma Kemp Smith does a wonderful job. He breaks it down into three, four sentences, but all the logic is there. Allegedly, some, some Germans actually read Kant in English because of that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Crazy. yeah. Um, there was a question over there at the back, the two actually, so they're close together for a change. Oh, sorry. Yeah, because it's very hard for me to see here. Thanks. Um, hi. I was wondering whether there was a space in the book uh, to look at maybe this new modern sort of Silicon Valley marketplace approach to love. Um, you know, how, you know, through Tinder and other apps, there's more like, a, like love is kind of a market. And is there, is there a space for it in the, in the book? 
Oh, well, I tried to make book as contemporary as possible, but it was written quite a few years ago, uh, before I think Tinder even existed. Uh, but there, is some, there are some references to Facebook and uh, all these new gadgets uh, young people use. Although I have to say that as, because I don't use and I don't operate on Facebook and stuff like that, I wasn't, um, I mean, I was afraid it would not be very convincing if my characters were too engaged in that stuff. But, but I tried to grasp youth between, let's say, 25 and 35. And this was written a few years ago, so you do the, you do the math. But don't get it wrongly. We are not such a primitive country. I mean, everybody uses Facebook and Twitter <laughs> in Slovenia. Just, we don't. I'm here a Stalinist. I think Facebook and Twitter, this is just a loss of time. I would have in my ideal state secret police checking on people. If you are on Facebook more than one hour per day, you are mobilized to clean toilets in hospitals and so on and so on. Sorry. <laughs> Why are you so skeptical? Are you using uh, uh, on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> no, Facebook, Twitter. Twitter. You can find me on Twitter most hours. Yeah. Oh, so you don't have more complex thoughts? Everything you want to say can be put in, what, 130 characters? That's so naive about how Twitter Sorry? works. That's so naive about how Twitter works. Oh, okay. You can always link to other things. Yeah. But actually, concision can be quite effective. That's, unfortunately, that's true. Yeah. Um, hi. So, um... I'm very intrigued by this book, Yella. <laughs> I want to read it. It would have been lovely to have read it before coming here. Um, so I'm just trying to use the little glimpses of information that we're getting to kind of to get some insight into it. And um, one book it reminds me of is, is Filth by Irvin Welsh. Uh, just, just that aspect, um, I don't know if you know it, it's, I think it's quite recent. Just that aspect of a strong, silent type who goes around exploiting women um, in this flurry of activity almost, you know, from one person to the other. Um, that book, I don't think, is, is, is about love, is about that character and obviously how, how, how complex he is. So that inevitably makes me wonder about your book and, and your character and why he's in this flurry of activity of jumping from one person to the other, which links in nicely with what Slavoj pointed out, that this um, flurry of activity can be just a means of trying to fight change, trying to fight, keep things as they are. So is there something revealing about the character in, or in the way he goes about this flurry of activity and how's that resolved? Surely there is change, he can't fight it at the end. Uh, sorry, I'm not sure if I... Because we don't hear as... There's a bit of an echo yeah, here, yeah. actually. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> so, did I understand correctly? You were asking me if uh, my book was inspired by some other book from... No, I'm just, I'm just trying to draw parallels, because obviously I haven't read yours, but mm. what I took from the other one was that this, this strong but silent type who is very active in going through, through different people in, in what superficially looks like perhaps searching for love um, that, that might be conveying more about them and their struggle with themselves than about love, you know, finding love. So I wonder if there is any of that theme in your book as well, whether your character, you know, why is he so active 
Is, is he, yeah. like Slavoj yeah. pointed out, is he fighting something? Is he fighting change? Is he fighting himself? Yes, at least, at least at the beginning, uh, you can feel that all this, um, even all the humor comes out of this silent despair because uh, he's actually pretty broken up after his uh, ended relationship. And I have to say that you will probably find many references in the book. In a sense, you will see that it was inspired by Hollywood comedies, and probably some of them even have similar um, premise of the story. Make it clear, sorry. By Hollywood comedies, you mean mostly Ernst Lubitsch, Preston Sturdivant. That yes, but it? even I think this concrete premise was probably already filmed in some mm -hmm. bullshit Hollywood uh, comedy. But uh, I think that um, there are some twists in, in my book that at least I don't know that, that they exist in some other... Um, but if I understand correctly your question, sorry, this time will be very short. Isn't, maybe you don't know, but I will tell you now. Uh, I don't like this guy, Matthias. Really? I find him disgusting. I wouldn't like to have a friend like that. Just to make it clear. <laughs> it's interesting because he, to me, he's got disgusting traits, but there's something Oh, but what? It's a warm, deep human person. No, 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 no. I don't think he's warm. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he's warm, but he's quite attractive. He's quite sympathetic yeah. in, in a certain kind of honesty in the way that he deals with people. But he doesn't work anything seriously. He's just a lazy guy. He should be mobilized for forced That's what labor. Photography's like, isn't it? Sorry? That's what photographers are like, isn't it? <laughs> Okay, why not? Mobilize them, yes. I don't believe in freedom. People should work, my God. <laughs> sorry, sorry, it's my Stalinism, okay. No, but as we talked with Nigel, there, there are some parts in the book that are challenging for the main character in a sense that he has to respond to a critical situation, like when his friends are in despair, or at the end when he has to... Um, defend uh, the dignity of a lady and you can see that at the crucial points where it really matters he is not such a bad okay. guy I can so, see though if the point. book had been written by a man I think it, you would have been if you were a man you would have been accused of deep sexism I think yeah. by presenting a character who's got these terrible traits but has some sympathetic aspects I think yeah. um, there's another question up in that region Um, I think it's sort of deeply um, embedded in our culture tradition that um, a life in which you don't find tr your true love is an incomplete life. Do you agree with that proposition? And second of all, um, if you don't, is that why many people convince themselves they are in love when perhaps they're not? Uh, sorry, what was the second part of the question? Well, if I don't believe in... Uh... Well, if you, it, it, uh, the basic proposition is that um, you need to be, find your true love to have a complete life in a sort of philosophical sense. Um, but um, if that doesn't exist, if that's just a false proposition, um, is that why many people go around thinking they're in love when they're not? Because otherwise they'd have to admit they've got an incomplete life. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting and a very good question, I think. I, I think uh, this assumption is not right. I don't think that uh, people should be in pair in order to have a successful or satisfying life. I think that an in individual can have a very, um, very flourishing life on his own. 
But it is true that uh, our culture and probably even books like this uh, make push us towards this idea and this longing for uh, another person in our life. And that is probably problematic, yes. Uh, you know what would be my position here? I take your question very naively, in a realist way. What do I think? Uh, first, I think what I already hinted at, that uh, true, authentic love not only doesn't complete your life, it destabilizes it radically. It throws, throws it off the rail and so on. At the same time, I think, and here very classical metaphysician, what my friend Alain Badiou would have called events, like without having a personal commitment, it can be love, it can be work. science, even work, uh, whatever you want, politics and so on. Then, in a way, you, you remain a human animal. I'm here quite classical metaphysician. Most of us, both, most of us, and not the poor people, the rich even more, they just vegetate. And I think it's in a way something very traumatic, but at the same time uh, deeply satisfying, but at a, not at the level of simple pleasure, uh, if you find some, why not put it in very naive metaphysical terms, some kind of a absolute on which you are transfixed. Like I read, you probably know this more about me, I read somewhere, or so, a friend of mine drew my attention with, that the Greek word stasis has a wonderful contrary meaning. It can mean stasis as static, non-changing, but it also means rebellion, in the sense of standing up against. And you need, in this sense, a stasis in your life. Maybe it even makes it more unhappy. Because I don't think happiness, for me at least, is not a good category. Happiness is for stupid people. I mean, uh, you really? know... Hap Sorry? Really? Listen, I developed in my book, I forgot which one, I write too many of them. <laughs> I had a wonderful debate in Lithuania years ago, when people were really happy. Was there a political regime? And we came anonymously, like in the Stalinist Party Congress, to the conclusion... Czechoslovakia in the 1970s and 80s, Husak regime. Why? They were living relatively well, materially, not too well, and that's good. If there is meat all the time in the stores, you get used to it, you are not happy. If two days per month you don't get meat in the stores, it makes you happy that all other... So that's the first condition. The second condition, you must not be in power. It's too much responsibility. In authentic democracies, you are not happy. There must be someone out there on whom you can put all the blame. Communists in power, no? Third thing, you must have an ideal, like Western Europe, which must not be too far or too close. If it's too far, you don't have a precise idea about it. If it's too close, like for us in ex-Yugoslavia, where borders were completely open the last 20 years, we knew that it's basically the same shit as with us, you know? But, so it must be at the right distance to dream about it. Life must be safe. And that was the trick of uh, Husak regime, this decadent normalization after Prague 68, you had, you were, if you didn't mess with politics, you had a certain private life, private needs, satisfaction. You have someone communist in power to blame for and so on. I think people were happy there. 
It's a very sad confusion. I'm not for that regime. But okay. that's happiness for me. I know you don't agree. That's why. Well, there are obviously different senses of happiness as yeah, well. Yeah. And subjective okay. interpretations yeah, 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 are yeah, yeah, not yeah. necessarily the, the only measure. Just picking up on that question, though, about the kind of self-deceptions in love, it strikes me that, that uh, Matt, at the beginning of the novel, is suffering from a kind of sentimentality, a kind of unearned emotion, as it were, in his love for Sarah, who he split up from, because there's a kind of um, romanticisation of the nature of their relationship. And, and so that self-deception is actually addressed, I think, in the, in the novel, and there are characters who deceive themselves in various ways, um, so, so you definitely do touch on those subjects but I, I would agree with the question that the area of love is one of those areas where we are so prone to self-deception mm-hmm. and, and so prone to deception as well it's a particularly vulnerable area that's part of something we haven't really talked about how love makes people vulnerable as well that that's, seems to be an important aspect of it but also one of the deceptions of love is also the most dangerous one, the cynical deception, that you pretend to be a realist, you, like to give a simple melodramatic example, all of a sudden you become aware of all the faults of your love object. This is not realism. Maybe you are escaping from something and so on. So there can also be deception which appears as its opposite. Now I think I, I see things clearly and so on and so on. It's... Love is a big mess, to put it like that. One more question. Hi, thanks. Um, Just touching on the previous question about fulfillment, uh, I just wanted to ask um, regarding the character in your book and also personally, um, does your character, so the main protagonist, uh, do the relationships or the one-night stands or the, you know, sexual... uh, encounters that he has, do they help with his existential dread? And does marriage in your personal lives, Slavoj in particular, has this helped with your dread existentially? Uh, sorry, I, I, so, I can... Yeah. As I understood it, the question was, look, Matt goes through this whole series of relationships and one-night stands and so on. Does it help appease his existential dread? And Slavoj, in your marriage, does that somehow bring you back away from existential angst? I cause angst, I hope so. I don't bring peace. (laughs) The worst thing you can say about me is that I bring peace or what? No, but you're a good guy. Oh my God. (laughs) Sorry. Do you you hate me so much? Yeah, Yeah, but as far as the main character goes, I think that the thing is that his frame of mind changes. He starts as this bon vivant Don Juan figure and then gradually just um, becomes more um, sensitive, uh, more maybe even more complex. And uh, then he can enjoy love and relationship uh, in another way than he did at the beginning of his love quest. So there is an evolution of a character I hope, at least, because... But if I may draw a megalomaniac comparison with my favorite uh, Sam Beckett play, is it non-I or not-I, you know? Not-I. Not-I, monologue. It appears just the same, but it's a very subtle play. Crucial shift happens. It's not just always the same. And I think this is what... Unfortunately, maybe many readers will not, but I hope they will, that exactly this is in your novel. It appears just the same on and on, but no, there are subtle changes throughout it. It's not just the same one-night stand story repeated again and again. And you can find out yourselves by buying a copy at the back of the room and getting it signed personally. 
Um, they're priced ten pounds, which is very reasonable for this book, I think. Um, you repeat the dish so often. Do you get ten percent or what? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I must apologise to him. You know how many aggressive, dirty remarks did he have? Probably more. You had more aggressive remarks. Uh, in last two hours than in last two years of your life. Well, I, I think you're trying to seduce me after having read this book. Right? <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> but let's keep this between the two of us, don't <laughs> yeah. um, Savoy also has at least one book that he's happy to sign at the back as well, so make sure you buy them before that if you're, if if you're, you if you're going to get the signatures. You, yeah. And I just want to thank uh, the happy couple um, for thank a you, wonderful Nigel. session, and thank you very much for your questions and for coming. Thank you very much. So you need to run. Could you just, you may be tempted to waylay these guys as they go to the back of the room, but can you just talk to them when they're sitting down at the back rather than as they go past you? Thank you very much. <laughs>